So man? while we're bringing up Jenko, Jenko, now all is right in the world. How are Good, you? Good, man. How are you? I'm doing well. I'm doing there. well. Always. I feel like we need always a, a lot going on. Like someone to just run through the news, like a weather report, <laughs> like they, like PO, like Nick does. I put my hand up to my ear and say, "Just in from the newsroom." Exactly. Well, welcome everyone to Lawline with Carlo and Jenko. We bring it in conjunction with Rug Radio. We talk about new and current events in Web3 legal, blockchain law. We record this space, so not the place to talk about confidential legal information. We are not giving out legal or financial advice on this space. If you do have a specific legal question, you should consult a lawyer privately, not on a recorded Twitter space that might be rebroadcast. So we have some Web3 lawyers in the space. Ira, welcome. Thank you for joining us. Birdnalls, Texas blockchain lawyer. Props to Birdnalls. Yesterday delivered a phenomenal space um, where he did an incredible breakdown of the Ripple case. And uh, I'm working on getting some clips consolidated from that Birdnalls that I want to share with you Um Via the Rug Radio platform, we've got the ability now to isolate clips, and I'm trying to work on getting that technology perfected so that we can get some of your brilliant takes on this case out there for the world to consume. I hope you're doing well, my friend, and thank you as always. Metaverse Lawyer, thank you for joining. Jenko, how is your life today? What's good? Everything's great. Working, working away. You know, the old terms and conditions drafting, um, going over like marketing material and some decks, but um, very excited. I don't understand like the price stuff, the trading stuff is, is still hard, but there's a lot of cool things coming, I, I think. Yeah, I think that the people who truly understand the transformative nature of this technology are not at all perturbed or in the slightest bit discouraged by the current market conditions. I think as long as the world can keep it together and remain relatively stable, we should see continued growth of blockchain technology. And, and I hope the world remains stable because obviously there are a lot of very scary scenarios going on right now. Um, speaking of the market conditions, Jenko, I, I kind of, I wouldn't say that it's clickbaity, but I did want to talk about a subject that is being discussed in the space and I think needs to be discussed on our forum. There is an article that was published in Decrypt, which suggests that based on that recent complaint that the SEC filed against an influencer, uh, the action was brought against an Ian Bellina and whether he had properly disclosed uh, how he was being compensated for pumping a coin. In that SEC filing, there are some comments that caused folks in the space, including a respected colleague in the space, a uh, professor uh, who is very, very active and passionate uh, advocate of what we do in this space, um, Brian Fry, to, to raise at least some alarm bells that the SEC may be trying to put out a narrative that Ethereum should fall under SCC regulation as a security uh, under this notion that the majority of its control 
Well, isn't that an issue of jurisdiction, not the security analysis? It's first just talk. Yeah, no, that's a very good point. That's a very good place to start because, you know, just to set the table on it. um, So the article is, and I've, I've penned it up, but it basically is SEC claims all of Ethereum falls under U.S. jurisdiction. So you're right. It's a jurisdictional issue. It's not the security analysis. But what's interesting about it is, according to the article, the suggestion is that because of more, because more or close to half of Ethereum's validator nodes currently operate in the United States, that that it should be considered of American origin. Right? Maybe I read more uh, case law or something. But that that's what that reminded me of, like from law school. Now, Professor Fry expressed some concern, and I wanted to get him in here today, but unfortunately, he wasn't available. Um, he did graciously respond to our our, our retweet um, that he couldn't attend. But his quote is that saying that saying that enables in brackets the SEC close brackets to characterize doing business on the Ethereum blockchain as doing business on a U.S. securities exchange, which, from their regulatory perspective, is convenient. It makes things much simpler. So does it make things much simpler? Does it create a conversation in which Ethereum is actually now sufficiently? uh, And it's confusing because I don't know if this is an, an argument that it's more it's more centralized now and should be regulated as a security or just because it touches on your jurisdiction. Yeah, if you'd have to explain. I, I didn't. I tried to read through, but I don't I don't see that point. I can't stand up his point and maybe he'll come on like you said you were engaging. So I, I don't I don't know if it, there's a proper conversation we had there because I'm not convinced of that leap. I think jurisdictionally they can find it in many ways, especially when a project um, on Ethereum kind of advertises to U.S. customers or et cetera. So I don't, I don't, I don't make the leap. I don't, I don't see kind of the sky is falling that um, the professor put out there. Um, so I don't know. And I think the article does at least from my recollection of reading it, I'm skimming through it right now. The article does say that this isn't really of any uh, precedent value and it's most likely not a comment in this complaint that's going to draw any sort of a judicial ruling, but it certainly has been attributed to the recent downturn in the ETH market. And it's been talked about across the space. It's been tweeted about, it's been talked about in spaces and it's an example of where, you know, a narrative can get carried. Um, and it, it, it's, it, we haven't heard specifically from the SEC on how they, on how they would characterize the significance <clears throat> of this, but it's interesting. Anyone have any thoughts who'd like to come up and join us for the conversations? Yeah, anyone we have three legends that. out there. I, I really, it is, it's an example of the narrative getting, taking a life of its own it was a jurisdictional paragraph in a complaint and it was redundant i think like like it it's not necessary so it was one or two lawyers or a group kind of in one case throwing out the jurisdictional 
reach that, hey, since the nodes are concentrated in the U.S., that that somehow, if we have nothing else, could get us to applying U.S. law. That's even a different conversation than what should the U.S. law and regulatory scheme be and how are we going to get there? Because, like, I don't have a problem with if it's a good policy or a right regulatory scheme that the jurisdictional is expansive, like, or there's broad interpretations of where the nodes are. But I think the sky is falling stuff really is harmful. Um, I don't know. But but Texas and others came up. What's up, man? Hey, man. Welcome, Texas blockchain lawyer. Appreciate y'all bringing me up. Um, when I read about this, I kind of had the same initial reaction as Ray, you know, it, it seems to me like this is sort of analogous to a web two case where you have servers that are located in the U S and then, so you have a, a regulatory agency trying to exercise jurisdiction for that purpose, or just for the reason that, you know, they've accepted money from U S residents. Um, so I mean, I, to, to me, this just seems like it's the SEC. I don't want to say throwing spaghetti at the wall, but kind of just putting out all kinds of arguments to uh, assert jurisdiction. And I think kind of the more interesting, uh, the more interesting development that's recently taken place is how proof of stake would affect the Howey analysis. And to be quite honest, I don't understand how um, moving from proof of stake uh, from proof of work would make anything more or less of a security. So I'm interested on any um, feedback on that. Yeah. No, that's another clickbaity headline that's in the press today. Because if you Google SEC and digital assets, you do see that there is this suggestion now that the jump to proof of stake, and I think by everyone's account, the flawless execution of that merge somehow suggests that it's more centralized and more subject to SEC scrutiny. And that kind of led to why I also put up in the Nest Texas Blockchain Lawyer a thread that I did a few days ago, which I found interesting because in in the testimony that Chair Ginsler gave, he talked about the need to, quote, update key aspects of our national market rule system. And uh, in there, I kind of broke down that you know, we're applying 1930s securities law and we're applying the Howey test, which is, and I do a breakdown of the Howey test and I do a breakdown of the Orange Grove uh, case itself. But it's interesting to note that when Senator Toomey pressed Chair Gensler on this uh, with respect to the decentralized nature of most cryptocurrencies, because he believes that the vast majority are sufficiently I think, in his opinion, sufficiently centralized to be securities. He's excluded Bitcoin, but he did not ever want to touch the word decentralized, and he did not want to go so far as to talk about ETH. So there's an interesting push and pull here, because if they're saying that they, the SEC needs to modernize the uh, update, the key aspects of our national market system rules, you would think that that would logically open the conversation to maybe we need to modernize how we look at digital asset regulation. Yeah, I'm reading through that thread right now. And I agree with that. I mean, that would just give everyone some clarity, right? I mean, this is just kind of more regulation by enforcement. Exactly. 
And the fact that we don't seem to have any sort of a consensus on what is sufficiently decentralized to bridge this presumed chasm between virtually all cryptocurrencies are securities, Bitcoin is not a security, and now you've got the press speculating that the merge has now somehow put ETH in the category of a security. Um, it's interesting. You've got your hand up, CW. Thoughts? Welcome. Yeah, thanks, everyone. Uh, been offline for a while, just super swamped, but glad to be uh, back in the ring and talking with y'all. Uh, I wanted to circle back, actually, to the uh, Balani issue. I think uh, one thing that I am mulling about in my head and, and trying to dig into more is whether or not, you know, this is really, as you noted, Genco, an issue for the enforcement authority of the SEC or whether or not it's more of an issue for the actual merits of applying claims brought under uh, the Exchange Act and the Securities Act. Because the test of whether or not, uh, you know, irrevocable liability is related to jurisdiction is actually not really the correct way to parse that out. So jurisdiction is uh, the question of subject matter jurisdiction. And this was back in the Supreme Court's decision in Morrison in 2010, and then the Supreme Court was considering extraterritorial conduct and domestic transactions to prosecute uh, alleged foreign transactions in securities. Uh, they found that, you know, this this issue under 10b-5 of whether or not the sales occurred in the United States didn't matter for purposes of subject jurisdiction, su- subject matter jurisdiction. So it's really it's it's somewhat accurate to say, right, that this is like a jurisdictional issue, but it's it's really more about the merits of the claim and whether or not it can be said that the sales occurred in the United States under X Securities uh, Exchange Act law or Securities uh, Act law. And in this case, the only one that's really actually dealing with sales is the Section 5A claim. Uh, the other three uh, claims that are cited, or sorry, the other two claims that are cited only comport to like offers made in the United States, and those are obviously all domestic. And so I think this could actually be a really big issue later on down the road because, you know, the the SEC is going to have subject matter jurisdiction almost regardless based off of uh, the authority given it to it under Dodd-Frank. And there's, you know, then questions of whether or not this kind of test would apply in private uh, litigation amongst private plaintiffs that might be suing people for securities fraud claims. And that be- because... Uh, the Dodd-Frank only extended enforcement subject matters jurisdiction to SEC and DOJ is still a test that private plaintiffs are going to have to deal with. Uh, and it could get really messy and it already is, is totally messy. Like the circuits don't have any clear ruling. There are a few things that have been sort of bubbled up, but they haven't made it to the level of, um, you know, widely adopted or widely cited precedent. There's a case in the 10th circuit Scoville, uh, that y'all should look at. And then there's a couple cases in uh, the Second Circuit, one called um, Absolute. Uh, can't remember right now. Absolute Activist Fund uh, was decided in 2014 that really does a pretty good job of zeroing in on the domesticity test supplied by Morrison. Uh, and then I recently actually, just in response to another lawyer in this space's comment on Twitter, linked to a decision in the SDNY in a purported class action against Binance that sort of talked about, uh, you know, the fact that just having servers and whatnot in 
the United States is not necessarily enough to satisfy domesticity, but it's really a question then of whether or not, you know, we establish that irrevocable liability for a purchaser or a seller of a security occurs when that transaction is recorded on the blockchain or when, you know, you actually enter the agreement to buy or sell the security. Uh, and so there's going to be a lot of issues that come up, uh, in, in my opinion, uh, around these sort of timing and sequencing uh, effects that um, is is probably not going to get fleshed out in this case because it's not super important, uh, especially the way that they've alleged it. It only applies to U.S. purchasers, but it's it's definitely something to pay attention to going down the road. Fantastic analysis, <clears throat> CW. I pinned you? the. Oh, uh, no. I'm sorry, Jenko. Just for the for the audience, in case they were curious, I also pinned. I don't. I don't endorse this story in any way. I just pinned it because of its its relevance. Uh, the title of this Gizmodo story that I pinned is Ethereum plunges after SEC chair says that quote the merge end quote could make crypto a security, and then it talks about his comments post merge in which he's quoted as saying. From the coin's perspective, that's another indicia that under the Howey test, the investing public is anticipating profits based on the efforts of others. And that's according to a quote that Gizmodo dropped of something Gizler, Gizler said to the Wall Street Journal. Just wanted to put that out there, Jenko. What are your thoughts? No, CW, that's a great kind of history of the jurisprudence. Like my understanding, and I just wanted to see your take, is that, or maybe you said it and I missed it because you, you had a lot of info in there. The liability that you're talking about that requires the transaction to be finalized in the U.S., is that for only private right of action, not SEC violation for unregistered security, or does it apply to both types of suits? Does that make sense? The irrevocable yeah. liability, isn't that, is that for one or both? So it's, it's for both. And so we're talking about kind of two separate ideas here, and it's tricky because Right. When Morrison was decided, they were construing whether or not the sales occurred in the United States, not for purposes of subject matter jurisdiction. Right. Not for purposes of whether or not the SEC could bring that within a federal court. They were construing it to determine whether or not the actual 10B5 statute applies to foreign conduct. And so they held that the domesticity requirement for 10b-5 claims requires the sale of the security. And I'm simplifying a lot of stuff, but the sale of the security occurs in the United States. And then they established that, Isn't that limited liability uh, standard, but they never fleshed that out. And it's being oh. fleshed out in later court opinions. And so that activist or the absolute activist value fund, I'll try and link it here later, uh, is a really good one to look at because they develop what they believe to be the test for establishing irrevocable liability for purposes of determining whether or not a claim is actually stated under 10b-5 or in this case um uh, actually i think that was 10b-5 but the the point is right that this is not necessarily about jurisdiction it's about whether the plaintiff has stated a claim sufficient to survive a 12b-6 motion again to I, adequately state a claim oh sorry go ahead no, I'm just trying to delineate in all claims related to the unregistered, the, 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 the transacting or issuing of an unregistered security require, do all claims 
related to that, whether coming from a plaintiff uh, under private right of action or the SEC, require the, the finalization of the sale within the borders? Or is that just for the substatute that was at issue in that 2010 case that you're talking about? Right. So wasn't it narrow answer. and applied yeah. because the SEC can my point is, it seems that the SEC can just bring it under other sections of the code. Right. So okay. that um, I get what you're saying. Thanks. So so that type of test does apply to all claims that are brought under the statute, but it hasn't been super widely applied. Uh, and there are other cases where it might not necessarily apply. But in like this case, right. It was Morrison decided this test under 10b-5, but subsequent cases, and that was under the Exchange Act, but subsequent cases have applied the same analysis to claims like what are at issue in this case, a 5a claim under the uh, Securities Act for selling unregistered securities within the United States. And I also, so, so it can be applied to other situations outside of the 10b-5 scope, and it would apply to private plaintiffs, the SEC, DOJ, etc., but I, I do want to state, right, the, the issue is not if the transaction is necessarily finalized or occurs in the United States uh, for, for the irrevocable liability piece. And there's a second uh, domesticity factor or element that I haven't touched on that could also apply but isn't alleged necessarily here. The irrevocable liability is whenever it's almost like contract law, right? Whenever the meeting of the minds has occurred such that the person the buyer, the seller cannot back out from the transaction without a breach is generally the way to think about this irrevocable liability principle. And that is focused not necessarily just on, you know, where the transaction is happening, but when the transaction is happening, because it requires looking into the timing of, you know, when this meeting of the minds actually formed. Uh, the second part is, right, domesticity could also be established if title transfer occurs in the United States. So if the actual security is transferred in the United States, it's possible that that domesticity requirement would be met as well. Uh, and, you know, who knows, does title transfer occur when it is recorded on the Ethereum blockchain? It's, it's not clear. And I think it poses a lot of issues for these sort of like instantaneous, you know, trades that are made when transactions are recorded. No one really goes in to buy tokens off of an exchange with the, you know, knowledge or agreement that, you know, this is something that is going to be subject to a later confirmation and ratification once it leaves the mempool. There's just sort of this implicit understanding that this rec recordation on the blockchain is like a condition that happens after the fact. But courts have held that even that sort of condition after the fact is not sufficient to sort of deny the presumption that the sale or the irrevocable liability occurred when the agreement to sell the security was made, right? So if like Ethereum went down and my transaction didn't go through and it wasn't recorded on the blockchain or if I get beat out in a gas war, right? Like it's, it's not clear yet. And, and that's because the courts really have not dove into this nuance because they really haven't had to, uh, that the, failure of that prevented me from buying a security, right? And so it's not clear whether or not the domesticity test would apply or not. Um, so it's it's pretty thorny. And I think this could resurge a lot of the debate that came out sort of post-Dodd-Frank uh, determining whether or not 
you know, the statute that expanded the SEC's subject matter jurisdiction actually just sort of displaced this entire dis- domesticity requirement, like whole cloth. Uh, or if now we have this weird thing where the SEC technically has subject matter jurisdiction to alleged claims under the secu- uh, alleged securities fraud claims, but those securities fraud claims may nevertheless not be meritorious because the language requires the sale itself to have a domestic locus. Um, I want to ask you, CW, because I pinned something I had put up a long time ago, which yeah. touched on the the Terraform Labs case. And oh, I, I can't talk about that one. OK, and that's Sorry. fine. <laughs> I, I just yeah, no, that's fine. But just for the audience, uh, I, I found that interesting because I think that is a particular instance where this issue of where you're domiciled and jurisdiction may come into play because the backstory there is that they served Quan while he was at a conference with a subpoena and there's been litigation back and forth about quashing that subpoena and whether the SEC has jurisdiction over him or not. So I'm wondering out loud if that's going to be another instance of how jurisdiction might be challenged. And I understand you can't touch that Sometimes lawyers can't talk about things, and I respect that CW, but just put it up there for, for purposes of continuing that debate. CW, can I, can I bring it back one more point of question? Because it seems like you've gone through it, and I'm trying to – I'm trying if, – if it's important, it's important. Um, are you saying that if the analysis of the Ethereum blockchain, the nodes concentration in the U.S., if, if that doesn't carry water, will the SEC have any power to, re- to, to claim that some of these NFTs, ETH-based NFTs, are, or are under their jurisdiction? Like, what, what's the yeah. world? Are, you're saying that, that they lose every battle because even no, if you're... No, 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 no. Okay. Not at all. So, so the scenario is really a very thin set of facts or, or a narrow set of facts where a defendant can kind of get off, get, get away with this. Because if you're a U.S. customer selling and marketing to U.S.-based folks, but the transaction is on Ethereum, do you see that as a viable defense? Right. So if you're a U.S.-based customer, you're a U.S.-based exchange, and you're selling to U.S. folks, right, the, the domesticity requirements are met there just by virtue of everyone being in the U.S. The real issue is whether or not this concept of irrevocable liability creates the ability for, you know, the SEC to seek engor- disgorgement for foreign purchasers only on the basis that their nexus with the United States is that their transaction was recorded on a blockchain validator in the United States. And so those plaintiffs, they might not have the ability to necessarily uh, assert a claim against, right? But that doesn't necessarily preclude their ability to try to bring those claims. It gets to the merits of whether or not the sales themselves actually occurred in the United States for purposes of proving their claims. And so it's, it's tricky then, right? Because and I think you alluded to this they earlier, get into right? The, the SEC court and then they lose on M- MSJ or something. Right. Yeah. Exactly. And that's most of these things are decided at MSJ anyway. And that's but, the narrow plaintiff who got sold an unregistered security, but they are foreign to the U.S. and their only nexus is these the nodes, arguably. 
Right, right. Yeah. Okay. And Everyone else. It, right? Yeah, they have, they have the yeah. ability. The SEC can, has jurisdiction based on a wide variety of contacts that someone makes with the domestic market, right? And those would equally apply then to the merits analysis and this domesticity test. But if it comes down to a question of where the sale occurred and they're relying on this Ethereum validator argument, that's going to be a problem. And then, like I said before, it's going to be potentially even a bigger problem for private plaintiffs that might be trying to bring like class actions or something like that under the securities fraud statutes, because they don't have this specially uh, designated subject matter jurisdiction available to them, the Dodd-Frankie of the SEC. Very cool, man. Thanks for jumping in. Yeah, Very amazing, cool. amazing breakdown. So I like that that same yeah, thanks, element everyone. comes up in both analysis, and it'll it'll go for the plaintiff in the first one and not the second one, and it's just wasted procedure. But that that makes a lot of sense. So I think we've definitely clarified the jurisdictional aspects of this and the debate that's looming. And it seems, without further information, we really can't definitively conclude from what's been parsed in the press, that this puts ETH any closer to being a security. Fair to say, Jenko? I can't give an intelligent. I'd love to see what CW thinks, but um, sometimes the narratives are more than the merits. Right. Yep. It's definitely the narratives are, are taken over. And I think the the uh, Balani case itself, yeah, has no implication on whether or not Ethereum is a security, or sorry, the Spark tokens rather, are a security, uh, which I believe is act- what they're actually alleging. And and you know, I can't comment or the merits on that or not, just because I haven't really looked at how the Spark token operates. But um, one other thing to consider, right? And I'll link this case, or I'll, I'll tag y'all in it once I find it. Is you know, where does irrevocable liability really arise then? Is it when something is recorded on the chain or is it when you use an exchange? And actually the SEC was successful in the Southern District of New York in a case arguing that, you know, when you place orders to trade tokens on a exchange platform online, that purchase or sale order that you make is the point at which irrevocable liability attaches. And so you can see that there might be some conflicts then as ordering of transactions in the ecosystem gets sorted out and post-merge, this could be an even bigger issue, right? Because we're now going to have the ability to sort of order blocks to order transactions that then get validated. And, you know, these sequencing concerns, they're, they're already kind of a problem with like front running and stuff now, but, but they could become a much bigger problem as compute power and applications start to really take hold. Excellent analysis. Where do you again. see it going, CW? I mean, it's it's honestly this jurisdictional discrepancy with the subject matter jurisdiction and the uh, ability of when to determine where a sale occurs and where irrevocable liability is fixed. It it needs to get sorted out by like the Supreme Court. Like, there's very very few circuit decisions that are really getting this into the nitty gritty on the nuance and unless a statute changes or, you know, we get a majority of circuits that sort of uh, decide to forego this test for sec cases, at least because they decide that Dodd Frank has displaced the sec authority. And the Supreme court actually did have the opportunity to hear this issue a couple of years ago, but they denied cert. Um, 
so so it's it's something that needs to get sort of fixed at the fundamental level uh and and until then right i think it's just going to be a matter of how users are able to understand and move within the blockchain ecosystem and you know if a private plaintiff recognized that they got front run on a lot of large orders that they placed and and tries to bring a uh, class action or something like that because you know one of these in-between block builders has been secretly taking bribes to order token transactions uh, that allowed them to get front run that that could be a real real problem does the prospects of that problem becoming even greater exist now because of the uh, proof of stake protocol and the fact that you essentially have the assurance based on the pledge of ETH that people are going to comply. But if the temptation to make even more ETH exists than what you pledged, is that is that like sort of a a potential to corrupt the system, so to speak? Yeah. So I think the reason why I think the, the proof of stake protocol now kind of makes this issue more problematic is because what the merge did was sort of decouple the uh, validation and block ordering uh, processes so that when individuals make a transaction on the Ethereum blockchain, they essentially write the the transactions don't effectively get written to the chain until they're validated, and they just sort of sit in this mempool where you know anybody can sort of look into that mempool and decide, okay, I want to put this traction transaction ahead of this transaction on the blockchain because this transaction is paying more gas. And if any of y'all have tried to like you know, cancel uh, an NFT purchase or something like that by sending yourself zero ETH with a higher gas fee to the same nonce or at least familiar with that concept. That's kind of how, uh, that's kind of what's happening. But now that the merge has happened, the sort of ordering of transactions can actually happen by what's sort of being referred to now as block builders. So they can choose the most efficient, most profitable transactions that they want to put into a block that then gets kicked up to a validator before it gets onto the chain. And so you can see then with this sort of ability to sequence transactions based off of, uh, this is why maximum extractable value is becoming more of a concern. This ability to sequence transactions to extract the most value in a block becomes more discretionary uh, by these sort of intermediaries. You introduce the risk that these people will start acting nefariously and allowing certain transactions to be recorded earlier than other transactions based off of, you know, their ability to use bots to more quickly determine that if I front run this trade, I will be able to, you know, arbitrage the difference and then uh, make a little bit of money. And, you know, if you're paying people more money to front run transactions and then you know, we got to assume that these transactions and securities for this hypo to sort of take hold. Uh, you know, there's a real risk that there's there's there could be some fraudulent or nefarious conduct going on. And where that point of irrevocable liability occurs for purposes of when the sale occurs is, I think, going to be a pretty important question to resolving whether or not, you know, it was truly fraud in the sense that they were front running or, you know, whether or not no sale had occurred. So there was nothing to front run. Can I ask a really naive question because I'm not a dev, I'm not a coder. How do you how can you specifically target a specific proof of stake node 
like how would you be able to know that that's the person who's going to be validating the transaction ahead of the transaction going down? I imagine this is randomly kicked out there and allocated amongst a pool of people. How would you be able to target one person to 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 let's say corrupt them? Right. So it's kind of based on uh, an economic incentive, right? That people who are validating have the incentive to validate transaction blocks that have the most value stored in those blocks. And so all of this, all of the transaction information that you put out there before it actually goes to a validator sorts, sort of sits in this interstitial space like called the mempool that then allows people to say, okay, I am going to select your transaction and I am going to then record that transaction on the blockchain. And the reason they do it or how they can tell which ones they want to select is because you're paying to have that validator pick your transaction out of the gas, out of the pool. That's what the gas fees are for. And so, you know, people have developed, and I'm not a dev either, so I don't know the exact technical ways in which they have, you know, implemented all these different things. And I think there are a variety of ways to do it, but, you know, bots that will go in and sort of, be able to analyze which transactions are sitting there in this mempool space and figure out the details of what those transactions are faster than they can be absorbed by a validator, right? And so they will then, if they decide, okay, this person has bought 100 ETH at this price, I can put in that same purchase and kick it in front of the line of that same uh non-same instance where that transaction is recorded pay a higher gas fee to then make the validator or the person selecting my transaction more attractive to them to select first right then that's how they know that's how that transaction gets validated ahead of the one that i've placed and so what people have started to do now is create this ability to sort of scrape all of these transactions and use bots to order them so that when a validator receives a block of unvalidated information, it's the most valuable block of information that they are able to validate at that point in time. They'll get the most ETH rewards for validating that block because uh, it's been it's been efficiently packaged in a way that these transactions that take place at these times uh, that are paying this amount in gas, uh, will be your best shot at this point in time for getting the maximum value out of the uh, block that you decide to write. And so, so you know, validators might not necessarily be entirely conscious of, you know, this sort of stuff in the middle might be happening. They don't really care often. They're just concerned with, you know, we just want to get the most ETH for validating transactions, whether or not it's proof of stake or proof of work. But proof of stake creates this difficulty, right, where it's now more efficient for people to order blocks in the interim from these transactions that happen on the mempool and then submit those blocks to the validators uh, to ultimately be written onto the Ethereum chain. And it's really it's really confusing, I know, and, and it's taken me a lot to sort of go through and I don't profess to be like a total expert in how it all works, but um, that's that's kind of been the the hypothesis i've been working on wow it's uh it's probably a thing a thing that's going to become more and more debated 
Uh, I think you did a fantastic job unpacking it. I hope you'll join us more frequently if your schedule permits. Yeah, for um, sure. Yeah, um, amazing. Really, really great insights. And it's sort of a very sophisticated way of front running. It, it could be done and it could be validated completely innocently because of the incentive to maximize the return on validating a transaction, but it, it could be manipulated. Uh, so it, it does definitely create some things that are going to get scrutiny. Like it's, would... it's scary because the game that he's, that you've explained CW is the game that, you know, I don't know the ETH foundation or whoever it's like the game they set up. And if every component part kind of follows self-interest it's exactly how you kind of describe i think um not unlike robin hood or a lot of banks or a lot of ways that they um they put your deposits in at the end of the day but charge your overdrafts earlier like like the timing of transactions is important but just kind of publicly knowing the order before the order gets closed it, it could make for a very, I don't know how a market survives big players taking advantage of that. I think, I think there needs to be rails. I don't know. And then there's the, the added problem because in, as you, a consumer justice lawyer, who do you go after to get justice for any sort of abuse of this process when you have a decentralized exchange? The deepest right. pockets. And, and, you know, the other question is, right, how much of it is actually going to be considered illegal? Because, uh, Jenko's you exactly Precisely. It's point the game out, it's right? The game. It's, it's all public. Uh, these are, this is public information. And so it's, it's tricky even then to detail uh, or detect whether or not things are actually fraudulent. Um, and it is, as things become more consolidated, right, there are a lot of people out there who are afraid that the merge is really just going to lead to right? More centralization because bigger institutions with more capital are going to be the ones able to call the shots. Uh, it's, it's probably honestly just maybe going to be a problem that's going to have to be fixed by more regulatory work. And that's, that's something that, you know, for better or for worse might come down the road, or there are some projects out there that are trying to create guardrails or uh, protocols that incentivize more honest, good faith uh, transaction building and block building. But um, yeah, it's, it's still crazy times. It may not be solved. It may just be, that's the game. And like you said, central players kind of control it. Um, well, even in centralized markets, like even in securities markets, don't like hedge funds have, you know, algorithmic strategic advantages right. in the way they can get trades in. Yeah, absolutely. Right. So this is this is why it's an yeah. arms race. There are companies that will pay millions of dollars to have their servers located, you know, 50 feet closer to the New York Stock Exchange because they can get the transaction information that much faster. Um, I was, one of my friends works for a, a hedge fund and they do a lot of high frequency trading and he works in like their skunk works department and all they do is math. He's like they don't even care about, you know, fundamentals of companies. They don't look at market uh fluctuations anything like that they literally just do math because that practice of being able to understand and correctly order these transaction logics is that valuable to them being able to squeeze out you know that much more utility out of a particular transaction that they place on the order books 
so I guess yeah, blockchain's all math. So it's crazy. so I guess the big takeaway is <sighs> that you know even in even under what you want to characterize as a decentralized network, you're still going to have aspects of potential market manipulation based upon a technological advantage, uh, bandwidth advantage, whatever you want to call it. You you have ways to manipulate the processing of orders even in a decentralized ecosystem i don't know if it's manipulate it, it really is not on like robin hood front runs their customers that's why there's no fees um ethereum supposed to be a layer one and i think that you know more right reg- if i guess my point is these things will develop and the market will find some solutions or live with it but i think the ability to like empower retail is very very difficult it it, once you set up a game and it kind of always lands on these bigger players with the access can kind of dictate and then retail gets front run and that's just the cost of doing business it's just another poor tax and then you have the flip side of that gang which is what happened to these platforms when you look at what happened where the traders all got together and front run the hedge funds, as we saw with respect to, um, oh, geez, Janko, help me. The, uh, what stock did they, did they pull GME. GME, exactly. So could, <laughs> could you have a similar counter revolution on the, on the, well, there, there's, there's two things the the, Hopefully there's a democratization. Hopefully there's a dissemination of um, the technology and the tools. I tweeted about one where it's supposed to empower any individual investor to use quantitative and quantitative like analyses on crypto trading. And it kind of plugs right into your Coinbase or whatever. But there's also a case that we saw or I read where smart contract exploit is not what they didn't see it as criminal and I'll try and pull it, but to CW's kind of where, when he was mentioning, like it could, it still needs to be flushed out in appeals courts and different jurisdictions, but it may not be a market manipulation. It may be that that's the participation. And it took many, many years for the stock exchange to develop from you know the 30s to dodd frank to now like so i i don't know if there's a perfect system but i i hope that it doesn't just stop it all together um it may really discourage adoption if it's seen perceived to be market manipulation when really it's the maturing of a market and every market in human history kind of has elements of this in my head but i don't know what an amazing conversation. This is definitely uh, Thank a space you, CW. that, yeah, this is definitely one that needs to get retweeted and the space needs to listen to because an unbelievable in-depth conversation about what is currently scaring the space. And I would love to get Professor Fry on one day to join the space and talk about his thoughts on that, on that article and his quotes. In fairness to him, I want to give him a chance to respond, of course, Jenko, but this is a, a great start to the conversation, and this is why I love doing this. So to everyone who joined us today, thank you so much. CW, I'm glad you're back in the fold. Look forward to having you back on again. And Jenko, you and I will be back at it again tomorrow. Very cool. Everyone, enjoy the rest of your day. Thank, thank you both, uh, Texas, CW. Take care, Carla.
Thanks, everyone. Really glad to be back and uh, keep up the great work.